Well, God's grace and peace to each of you again tonight, dear people. Welcome to the Thursday evening session of Revival Meetings. Yeah, we're already, I guess, at pretty much the halfway point. Uh, the week is moving along rapidly, and, and I trust that you are being challenged and refreshed from the Word of God. I'm finding this week to be a, a challenging and strengthening week for me. Uh, in, my, in my personal study and preparation for each evening, uh, God is speaking to me. And God is showing me areas in my life that, that need to be revived, need to be drawn more into His image. And so, certainly revival is something that begins within each of us. If we are to be revived as a congregation, it must start at home, as it were. It must start within my heart. And through that, God can bless us as a congregation. Well, you know how children's meetings are. <laughs> They're often very helpful for us as adults, too. Maybe we should have more children's meetings. <laughs> Sometimes those simple lessons are lessons that we must hear. And they're so applicable to everyday life. I also agree with Brother Wesley in uh, commending the song leader for that opening song. It, it fits so very well with what I would like to share about this evening. Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into thy holy likeness to grow. I trust that's your heart this evening. Because if that is, if that is the cry of your heart, then God can fill you. God can use you. God will, will bring the word into your life and, and you will be blessed richly and, and others around you then will find the, the blessings pouring out of your life. But it starts by having a heart that longs for God. A heart that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Yes, Lord, I need that. Yes, Lord. Help me to put that to practice in my life. Lord, I want to go close, closer to you. I want to be dead to the world and dead to the flesh. And I want to be alive to you. And, and Lord, open my eyes that I may see truth. And, and it's all about godly aspirations. And in fact, that's the title of the message this evening. Godly aspirations. What is an aspiration? Well, an aspiration is a strong desire to achieve, achieve something noble. Therefore, a godly aspiration is a strong desire to achieve something of spiritual value. And let me just say, dear people, there is nothing else in this world that is more noble than that. To achieve something of spiritual value for the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing in His likeness. That is the calling for each Christian. To grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think about godly aspirations this evening, I invite you to Psalm 84 for a text. Psalm 84 this is a psalm of David. I will read it and then uh, make a few interesting observations and then we'll move in to the outline for this evening. Psalm 84. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. You notice the exclamation point there. This is the psalmist David. And he's... He's exclaiming, he's excited. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. You dare not read that with a dull monotone, okay? Verse 2, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. 
they will be still praising thee. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand, or better than a thousand elsewhere. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in Thee. What a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm that is just full of godly aspiration. A a psalm of longing for God. Longing for a deeper relationship with God. Now in my Bible, above this psalm, part of the heading says, A psalm for the sons of Korah. A psalm for the sons of Korah. Now, you may remember the names Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. These three men and some others with them rebelled against Moses and Aaron. We have that story in Numbers 16. But the Bible says that they led a revolt. They were the leaders that led this revolt against God's leaders, Moses and Aaron. And it says that they also influenced 250 men in the congregation. It says, famous men, men of renown. You see the agenda there? (laughs) They influenced the most influential type men, the great men in their congregation. It says, famous men, men of renown. And this is what they came at Moses and Aaron with, in essence, in my words. Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far. This whole congregation is holy. All of us are holy. And the Lord is with this whole congregation. Why are you setting yourself up above them as if you are some great people? We're all holy. Well, to make a long story short, the Bible says that the ground opened up and swallowed them and their families and their belongings enclosed back over them. And the Bible says they became a sign to the rest. That's sobering. They became a sign to the rest. I find it interesting, though, that in Numbers 26, when this story is recounted, it says, however, the children of Korah died not. In other words, the line of Korah was maintained. It did not die out. There were those within Korah's family that were spared. And then later in Scripture, we read that the sons of Korah became doorkeepers in the temple, or we could say janitors in the temple. And the children of Korah were actually part of the choir They were singers in the temple. I want you to think about that. Here were were family members that God spared from this tremendous, awful death. And we have them giving their lives back in service to God. Serving as janitors in the temple. Serving as singers in the temple. Wow. What a response to the mercy of God. Anyway, I share that because you see here that David is writing this psalm and it appears he's writing it to the sons of Korah. And he says in verse 10, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God 
than to live in the tents of the wicked. I find that interesting. A personal touch here to David's psalm. Another interesting note here about this psalm, it's generally supposed that David wrote this psalm after he had been driven out of Jerusalem by his very own son, Absalom. David was on the run for his life from his own son, Absalom. And I believe this helps us to better understand the context of this passage. In particular, it helps us to understand uh, the longing and the anguish of spirit that is flowing out of these verses. David is crying out to God. He's in anguish. He's on the run from his very own son. Can you imagine the feelings? One more thing I want to note here, and that is that David often wrote his psalms in the first person. In other words, you see, I, my, mine, the first person. His psalms were from the heart. His psalms had a personal appeal. They were from his heart to God. And so this makes the psalms especially powerful, dear people, when we read them today. Because then as we read them, they become the cry of our heart. He is my God. He is my King. This is my trouble that I'm dealing with. And we feel a personal connection there. It's no longer just David's, but it becomes ours as we read it. It becomes a part of us. And so with that in mind, I will give my points this evening with a personal appeal. Because first of all, they were the cry of David's heart. But then they are the cry of my heart this evening as I speak them to you. And I trust that it will also be your heart's cry as you hear them and meditate on them. Godly aspirations. We have four points this evening. I want my life to be marked by the following godly aspirations that we find in this psalm. First of all, I want to be one who is longing for communion with God. I want to be one who is longing for communion with God. And we find this in the first three verses and also in verse 10, which I referenced just a moment ago. Verse 10, he says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand days anywhere else. But here in the first three verses especially, let's notice those. David begins by saying, How amiable are thy tabernacles. Or many versions say, How lovely are your tabernacles. As if to describe the place itself, the temple itself. But the literal meaning of that word amiable is the word loved or beloved, which gives, I believe, a more accurate picture of what the psalmist is expressing. He's expressing his own love for God's house, his own love for God's presence. Not specifically the architecture itself, but his love for that place, his love for the presence of God that he feels in that place. You understand that in the Old Testament setting, God's house and God's presence are nearly one and the same. It's a very, very close connection there. You see, when people went to God's house, when they went to the temple, that is where they went to meet with God. That is where they worshipped God. That is where they did business with God. That is where lives were restored. That is where sin was forgiven. That is where souls were refreshed. You understand the meaning behind God's house, God's presence. It was a place where they found new purpose and new life. And the psalmist David here, in these verses, he expresses his longing to be in that place, to feel the presence of God once again. And the object of his desire, the object of his longing is God himself. 
It's the living God. He wants to commune with God. And once again, the occasion of his desire is he has been run out of town, as it were, by his very own son Absalom. The one who was kissing up to all the people, trying to steal the kingdom, as it were. David was forced to leave. And you notice how David does not say, Oh, how I long to be back in my palace. Oh, how I long to be back in my own bed. I long to have my crown. I long to be back in control of my kingdom. No, he doesn't. But the cry of his heart was, Oh, how I long to return in fellowship with God. I long to be in the presence of God again. You see, that was at the very forefront of his longing. Notice the strength of his desire. It was an inward longing. Verse 2, he says, My soul longeth, or literally, my soul is growing pale. I'm running out of oxygen spiritually. I need to be back with you. I need to be back where life is. It was a painful longing. He says, my soul fainteth. Or literally, my soul is consumed. It was a prayerful longing. He says, my heart crieth out to you. But more than that, it was an entire longing. He says, my heart and my flesh crieth out to you. Every bit of me, in other words, with my whole body, my being, my soul, every part of me is crying for you, O God. You see the intensity of the longing that David had to commune with God. He had somewhat of a a holy lovesickness about him. Notice that in verse 3, he's jealous of the birds. He's envious of the freedom they have. He says, even the birds have it better than I do. The birds have the freedom to just fly in and make their nests up above the altar, in the eaves, in the corner of the temple, overlooking the altar. They have the privilege of looking down and seeing lives being changed. They have the privilege of raising their little ones in that holy place. And here am I, way out, forced to leave, Oh, I wish I were a bird. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Do we feel the same burning desire after God? If so, we should not need urging to attend his worship. Some need to be whipped to worship. But David is here crying for it. He needed no clatter of bells from the belfry to ring him into the service. He carried his bell in his own bosom. And then he says, Holy appetite is a better call to worship than a full chime. I like that. Holy appetite is a better call to worship than a full chime. That bell that's ringing from the steeple of the church. I ask you this evening, what is your level of longing for God? What is the one thing that you want more than anything in your life tonight? And would your answer be consistent with your credit card bill? (laughs) Would it be consistent with your checkbook ledger? Would it be consistent with the vehicles that you own? Would it be consistent with the friends that you have? With the music that you listen to? Would those things make sense? Would it be consistent? If you were to... Choose a number between 1 and 10, with 10 being absolutely sold out for Jesus Christ. What number would you choose? What number would depict your level of longing for God? David said in another place, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. One thing. One thing. What was that one thing? He said, Lord, I want to see you. I want to experience your presence. I want to feel your power at work in my life. 
I want to see your face, Lord. That's my one thing in life that I want above anything. What is your one thing? You know, such a desire as this has a way of ordering our lives. It has a way of sorting things out, putting things in their proper perspective, putting things in their proper place. And a lot of times, that's way on down the list of priorities. And sometimes, dear people, it's completely off the list. The things that were so important to us, that took up so much our time, we were so passionate about, when Jesus Christ becomes the one thing in our life, many of those things just fall away. The song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the skeptics and the scoffers will say, what a cute little religious rhyme. But you know, if you are a believer tonight, you know the reality of that. You know the truth of that. You have experienced that. And God is calling you to experience that in an even deeper greatness tonight. And I just call you tonight to try God. Give God a try. Stop holding out on Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Tonight, I want to be one that is longing for communion with God. Godly aspirations. Secondly, as we look at this passage, I want to be one who is continuing in praise to God. I want to be one who is continuing in praise to God. And we find this in verse 4. Look at what this verse says again. Verse 4, we read, Blessed are they that dwell in thine house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Or, I want you to stop and ponder that a few moments. Think about that. What is the psalmist David saying? Blessed. How happy are they? How joyful are they? Who dwell in thy house. What does it mean to dwell? Does it simply mean to live? To live in thine house? Oh, that's part of it. But that's not nearly all of it. To dwell has the idea of to remain. To settle down there. To continue there. It implies a lifelong commitment to God. Blessed are they. How happy are they. How joyful are they who have committed to go the distance with God. A lifelong commitment. And what does he say then? They will still be praising thee. In other words, it's a lifelong praise. It's a lifelong joy. And that is founded in a commitment to go the distance with God. To dwell. To settle down. Back in my parents' day, I understand that young folks kind of dated around some. Now, I don't think that's a good idea, but that's what they say they did some. They, they dated around some. And they would date this girl or date this guy, and then maybe they'd date this girl and date this guy. And, but when they got serious, they called it going steady. Okay? Now I'm going steady. Now I'm committed. I'm done dating around. I see a similar concept here. Those who are committed to going steady with God are the ones who enjoy the blessings of lifelong peace and contentment. It comes through steady, steady communion with God, that commitment. 
You see, a disposition of praise and joy is not founded in the happenings of this life, but it is the direct result of a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. But along with that, dear people, it is a choice that we make that reflects our level of trust in God. Someone has put it this way, the same boiling water that softens potatoes hardens eggs. It's all about what you're made of, not your circumstances. Think about that. It's all about what you're made of, not your circumstances. And I will add to that little line, and what you're made of is directly connected to your level of commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, I would like to use the example of my dear Grandma Good, Beulah Good, as an illustration of this. Perhaps some of you older ones would have known her. And this is certainly not for the purpose of, of bringing glory to Grandma, but it's all about bringing glory to God, because I truly believe if God could do this in Grandma, He can do it in me and He can do it in you as well. Now, Grandma was not so much of a flashy person. In fact, Grandma was not that attractive physically. She wasn't necessarily a drop-dead gorgeous type of woman. And yet Grandma was beautiful. She was beautiful. Remember that, young ladies. There is a deeper sense of beauty than just the outer. There is. Keep that in focus. Grandma was a little short. She was a little plump. But Grandma, through her life and through her testimony, she influenced, she impacted perhaps more people than we will ever know. You know, her voice, her voice didn't stand out above the crowds. She wasn't one of those out front personalities. But Grandma was a writer. And through her cards, and her letters, and her poems, which she wrote a lot of poems, and her visits, and her words of encouragement, and through the way she lived her life, and even through her death, there was a theme that flowed throughout Grandma's life. And that theme was thankfulness. Grandma was a thankful person. I'm told that Grandma never complained. I never heard her complain, but of course she lived for many years before I came on the scene. But I'm told that she never complained. She was always thankful. I know her in the later years of her life, and she lived to be in her uh, 93, 94, something like that. But in the last two years of her life, she was moved three times to different places, lived for a little bit, three different times. And in all of that, she said, thank you. That didn't ruffle her feathers. She never complained about that. And after she could no longer walk, she almost always said thank you when someone helped move her one, one chair to another or from uh, you know, her wheelchair into the car or vice versa or helped her. She would always say thank you, thank you, thank you. I remember for me as a young pastor, Grandma was one of my greatest supports. After I would preach, Grandma would always meet me at the back of the church and say, Joshua, thank you for that sermon. That meant so much to me. There was sincerity in her eyes. There was true thanks. And Grandma was one of my prayer warriors. She would often say, I'm praying for you. She would give me notes of encouragement. And when Grandma passed away, I lost one of my greatest prayer warriors in Grandma. But even Grandma's last words were words of thankfulness. As she laid on her deathbed, I was there. And she was saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now we look at that and we say, how could Grandma be so thankful? What was it that made Grandma so thankful? Was it that she lived such an easy life? Was it that life for her was sort of a stroll through the park, as it were? And I say, absolutely not. In fact, Grandma knew what pain and suffering was all about. 
Grandma lost her mother when she was just 14 years old. And then Grandma had to sort of be the mother of the family. And then Grandma and Grandpa lost their little son Richard when he was just five in a farm accident. And then they lost their son Daniel many years later. And there was many other bumps and hard times along the way. Grandma knew what pain was about. And yet she was thankful. She praised God. Her life was a life of peace, a life of rest. What was different about Grandma? Why was it that way? You see, it's obvious that Grandma's thankful spirit was rooted in something much deeper than the things of this life. Her disposition of spirit did not flow out of what happened here. But instead, I'm convinced that Grandma's disposition of thanks and praise, first of all, it flowed out of her vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, she had given Jesus Christ the keys to her life. She had given full control of her life to Jesus as a young girl. And that was foundational in the grandma that I knew many years later. Christ controlled her. But along with that, that vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, it flowed out of her. It flowed out of her quiet and confident trust in the Lord. Because God was her king. Because God was at control of, uh, in control of her life. She found peace in that. She rested in that. Dear people, Grandma chose to be joyful. Grandma chose to trust, and you have that choice to make as well. It is a choice that God has given you. Can you control the circumstances of your life? Many times not. And yet you can control, dear people, your response to that. I want you to note, and we'll, we'll move to this verse in just a moment, but I want you to just quickly note here in verse 6 that it says, who passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well. It says, these people who are traveling through the desert experiences of their life, they make it a well. They make it a place of springs. They make it a place of life. Isn't that amazing? The place in reality is, quote, a bad place to be. It doesn't feel good. It's a place of suffering. And yet, the believer who has a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then through their trust in Him, can make those miserable experiences even life-giving. Life-giving. Truly, our disposition in life is a reflection of our inner attitude, our inner condition. When there is a lack of inner joy, inner peace, inner rest, it shows a lack of trust in our Heavenly Father. We're scared to completely commit to Him. And I ask you again, is God good? The Scripture says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet in our flesh, we struggle to believe that. We struggle to surrender. We want to hold back. This psalm ends in verse 12 by saying, O Lord of hosts, blessed, or how happy is the man that trusteth in thee. That is the key. And I want to be one tonight who is continuing in praise to God. Thirdly then, as we think of godly aspirations from this passage, I want to be one who is daily committing to the journey. I want to be one who is daily committing to the journey. We find this in verses 5 through 7. And I would like to read them again in another rendering for clarity here. Blessed are those, verse 5, whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. 
As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, or they continue to grow stronger till each appears before God in Zion. Isn't that something? They continue to grow stronger. Now, you know what Paul says, even though our outward man perishes, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. You older ones understand that, don't you? Brother John, you understand that even though your outward man is perishing, yet your relationship with God becomes more rich. And I trust that it's more than just John. I understand that. I'm a young fellow, and yet I understand that too. The more, the more I give to God, the more I desire Him, the more I pursue Him, the sweeter the journey gets. And yet you won't experience that without experiencing that. The Valley of Baca. What is the Valley of Baca? Baca literally means weeping. It's the Valley of Weeping. I understand that it's referring here to a valley in Palestine that many people traveled through on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was on the way for many people as they went to Jerusalem, their annual pilgrimage. I understand that it was a sandy, barren, desert place. Uh, certainly not a place where you would find comfort or refreshment. It wouldn't have made for a good rest area. Not at all. One commentator put it this way, that a valley embarrassed with such bushes and thorns which could not be passed without labor and tears. That was the valley of Baca. The valley of weeping. And in this passage, the valley of Baca is used as an emblem of suffering. An emblem of discouragement, disappointment, hardships. Perhaps a situation in your life that looks impossible, that looks overwhelming. Maybe it's talking about hopelessness. Maybe it's talking about grief. That's the valley of weeping, the valley of Baca. It's in times like this that we're sometimes tempted to give up. We're sometimes tempted to throw in the towel to jump ship, as it were. Thinking about ships, the story is told of the Spanish explorer Cortez, who made a very extreme and unpopular decision in order to conquer the Aztec Indians. And while I don't support conquering the Aztec Indians in this way, I'm simply using this as an illustration for spiritual value. The year was 1519, and Cortez was sailing with 500 of his men to the shores of Mexico to conquer the Aztec Indians. And as they sailed up to the sandy beaches of Mexico, Cortez looked around at his men, and he noticed their fear. He could see it in their eyes. He noticed their hesitancy. They were scared. They were scared. They really just wanted to go back home to their families. They were scared of what the outcome might be. And that is when Cortez made this extreme and unpopular decision. And he commanded, boys, burn the ships. If we go home, we're going to go home in their ships. And you can imagine those men got committed real fast. As the smoke from their ships rose up, those men got committed. You see, there was no escape route now. There was no running away. There was no turning back. It was do or die. His intent was precisely that to help the, the, the men understand that they 
must be committed in order to win. And as the story goes, they conquered the Aztecs with ease. I share that because, dear people, there's times in our lives when, when we're just sort of weary of fighting. There's times in our lives that look overwhelming to us. In fact, we're scared of the future. Uh, we're tempted to just go back to the good old days where life was easier, less responsibility. We think about, you know, that easier life, the easier days, and those thoughts can be a distraction to us. We have these thoughts of swinging there in a hammock on the beach, sipping a pina colada. You know, those thoughts of ease. Oh, that looks so nice compared to some of the things we're facing right now. Wouldn't it just be nice to just sail away from it all and let it go? But dear people, with the help of God, we must burn those ships in our lives that water down our resolve to go all the way with Jesus Christ. And you know what they are for you. I know what they are for me. Maybe it's that bucket list. Maybe it's something you've always wanted to do. Maybe it's that elk hunt. Maybe it's that trip to Australia. Maybe it's, you know what it is. You've always wanted to do that. And yet sometimes those things can get in the way of our first and foremost allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if not repented of, if not let go, they can keep us from reaching our reward. They can crowd out. They can cloud our vision. And we find ourselves going backwards. Losing our first love. The Apostle Paul said this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's things, dear people, that we have to let go. And that we have to reach for the greater, the greater things, the things of much more value. And God wants to do that in our lives. He's calling us, come to me, come to me, come deeper with me. I have greater things for you. You must let go of those old things that are watering down your resolve, that are getting in the way of your allegiance to me. I say that an unrelenting commitment that is renewed regularly is crucial for our spiritual success. It's the attitude of the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm not turning back. I don't care if my friends agree or not. I don't care if anyone goes with me. I'm not turning back. <laughs> okay? End of discussion. I decided to follow Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 9. As we think about an all-out commitment to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Verse 59. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first 
Go bid them farewell, which were at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you see the response of the second and third man? Both of them said something that is absolutely impossible. They said, Lord, me first. How does that work? Lord, me first. The two don't go in the same direction, dear people. I mean, if Jesus is Lord at all, He is Lord of all. I mean, Jesus cannot be Lord when He is second or third on the list. Then He's not Lord. If He is Lord, He's on top. He controls your life. Otherwise, He's not Lord. No man having putting his hand and start looking back. Oh, we look back. Oh, how we long for those leeks and garlics, as it were, from the Old Testament. We think back of the good old days. And then we, we lose our focus. We lose our focus. And the loss of focus results in a different destination. As we look back in our passage, thinking about the valley of Baca, in our desire to daily commit to the journey, there are two words that give us hope. And those are the words, passing through. When passing through the valley of Baca. The psalmist David does not talk about dying in Baca, <laughs> okay? He talks about passing through the valley of Baca. You see, there is a way, dear people, through the valley of Baca. There is a way through that valley of weeping, that valley of suffering. There is a way through those seemingly impossible, hopeless situations. The Bible says, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. The Bible says that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. The presence of God is promised as we walk through the valley of Baca. He promises to be with us. You see, we find our way through those difficult portions of the journey of this life in the strength of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of heaven's armies, He is the one who is with us. I just want to quickly notice here the names for God that we find in this passage. Because those names of God, they tell us who God is to us. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord Almighty. He is my spiritual leader. He is my captain, my commander. Verse 2, He is the living God. He is the one who gives life. In fact, He is the one who has living relationships with His creation. He is the creator. And life flows from Him. And he extends an invitation to his creation to experience a living relationship with him, the creator. Verse 3, he is my king. And that speaks of control. He is in control of my life. But it also means that I am a part of his kingdom. I am a part of the king's kingdom. I am a child of the king. He is my God. Speaking of focus, He is my focus. A God of, of goodness. And thinking of a God, it is who we worship. He is my worship. He is the focus of my worship. Verse 8, He is the God of Jacob. In other words, He is the God that is faithful through the ages. 
He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as I look at that personally, he is the God of Henry, of Ira, of Nathan, of Joshua. And I trust he will be the God of Miles and Lucas and Ian and Colin. He is the God that is faithful through the ages. And if he has been faithful in the past, I can confidently expect him to be faithful in the future because he is a God that doesn't change. Do you find confidence in that? Strength in that? I do. He is, in verse 9, our shield, our protection. He is, in verse 11, a sun, which speaks of warmth, of light, of life. Dear people, I share that with you because that is the God that we serve. His names describe who He is to us and what He offers His children. That should give you strength That should give you confidence as you go through those valleys of Baca in your life. We can find joy in the journey, dear people. And we can even find blessing in Baca. When these two things are firmly in place. And the first is our foundation. And the second is our focus. When we think about our foundation, there are two pillars here of foundation in verse 5. And that is, the first pillar is the strength of God, and the second pillar is an unrelenting commitment to Him. Look at what verse 5 says. Blessed is the man whose strength is in who? In thee. That's our foundation. But it goes on to say, in whose heart are the ways of them, or And this is the unrelenting commitment to him that we must have, whose heart is bent on traveling his way. So the strength of God and our unrelenting commitment to him. People who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. That is the foundation for finding joy in the journey and blessing in Baca. But then secondly, is our focus. Verse 7, our focus. They go from strength to strength or they continue to grow stronger, every one of them in Zion appears before God, or till each appears before God in Zion. Our focus, dear people, is the finish line. Our focus is appearing before God. Our focus is seeing the face of Christ. Oh, how I long to see the face of Jesus Christ, the one who died for me, the one who I've surrendered my life to, the one who helps me every single day of my life, the one who stands beside me, the one who pours His Holy Spirit out upon me, the one who comforts me, all of that. One day, can you imagine seeing His face? Face to face with Christ my Savior. Oh, what will it be? I think of our family as we're going on a trip. A few years ago, we took a driving trip to southern Alberta to see my sister and her family. It's like a 37-hour drive. And we had gotten to about Richmond. And little Molly says, Are we almost there, Daddy? I said, Oh, no. It's going to be a long trip. (laughs) Are we almost there, Daddy? And And I see that picture Here in this passage, you have these families, these Jewish pilgrims that are on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way to the temple. And you see the little children. Oh, Daddy, I don't know if I can go any further. I'm tired. I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. You know, and and how much longer do we have? And, And Dad says, little Johnny, little Susie, it'll be worth it all. Just around this corner up here, we're going to see the lights of the city. Just around the corner, you're going to see the glory of the temple. We're almost there. We're almost there. Hang in there. It'll be worth it all. You see the focus. The focus. And the song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. 
That is my challenge to you, dear people, tonight. Keep running the race. It'll be worth it all. Daily commit to the journey. I want to be one of those. Lastly, then, I want to be one who is basking in blessing. We find this in verses 11 and 12. I want to be one who is basking in blessing. I mean, who doesn't want to be basking in blessing? We all want to be blessed. We all want to experience the blessings of life. And you know, there's so many people today that claim that they are blessed, and yet so few know what true blessings are all about. I meet people like that at the bake shop all the time. They talk about blessings. I think of my neighbor who I went to visit. He took me out to his shop. He showed me his bass boat. He showed me his guns. He showed me his, his ATVs. He showed me all his stuff. He said, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. And he's divorced and remarried on his second wife. And he's so blessed. I think of one situation that still leaves me somewhat speechless. A customer came into the bake shop some time ago. It's an acquaintance of mine. And he said, Josh, you won't believe this. But, and he's an older man. He said, I just realized that I have another daughter I never knew I had. I just realized that I have a 40-year-old daughter. I'm like, how's that? He said, it's from a girl that I dated years ago in high school. He said, Josh, I'm so blessed. I was so speechless. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I said, really? Yeah, I'm saying so few people today know what true blessing is all about. That is not the blessing that God promises to his children. You see, there's conditions for experiencing God's blessings. Do you know what those conditions are? They are obedience to God and his word. That's it. Those are the conditions for experiencing the greatest blessings a person could ever experience. You see, fellas, the greatest blessings in life don't come in the form of big bucks, <laughs> whether they're in your wallet or in the woods, okay? The greatest blessings are not found in big bucks. The greatest blessings are found in living a life of holiness, in living a life of obedience to God and His Word, in fact, those truest blessings of life, they run in unison with holiness, with obedience. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 24? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in His holy place? You want to know who, who is the one who, who experiences the presence of God? The one who experiences the rich, vibrant relationship with Him? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's it. That's what real blessing is all about. In James chapter 1 we read, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. That's it. That is the foundation for true blessing in life. Holiness of life. Active obedience to God's word. You won't find it any other way. The rest is just counterfeit. The rest is a lie from the devil. That is not true blessing. Those blessings that they say they have will end in spiritual death. It is God's blessing founded on obedience to his word and holiness of life that truly leads to eternal life. Psalm 84 ends by saying this, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly, or whose walk is blameless. What does that mean? Does that scare you? You might say, well, I... I'm not perfect. I can't be perfect. Dear people, according to Scripture, blameless is not simply never doing wrong. 
But in my words, it's, it's making your wrongs right. It's walking in the light. It's standing underneath the waterfall of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are being continually cleansed from your sins. It's keeping short accounts with God and others. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man that trusts in thee. You see, ultimately, the one thing that makes a man blessed is a trust in God. And that is fleshed out in the way that I live my life. Dear people, those two things are inseparable. They go hand in hand. A trust in God and how I live my life. They go hand in hand. And so, I want to be one who is basking in the blessings of God. But I understand that this will come only as I daily commit myself to obeying God, His Word, His will, following in His way, giving up control of my life to Him, living in accordance to truth. That is where true blessing stems from. And so, I want to be one who is longing for communion. I want to be one who is continuing in praise. I want to be one who is daily committing to the journey. And I want to be one who is basking in blessing. I trust, dear people, that is you as well. I trust that is your greatest desire in life tonight. And if it is, oh, you have so much to look forward to. You have so much to look forward to. Let's pray.